We're going to be continuing our series today on the Good News Kingdom in the book of Matthew. So if you want to turn to Matthew 5, that's where we are going to be today. If you're newer, or maybe this is your first time visiting, maybe you haven't been with us in a while, we've been in a series for the last several months on the Gospel of Matthew. We're calling it the Good News Kingdom. And we've been seeing where Jesus now has come to the place on the Sermon on the Mount, where he's up on a mountaintop, he's giving instruction to his disciples and to the listening crowds, showing how all of God's laws in the Old Testament were all pointing to him. God had given his law to the nation of Israel to be his people, to be a salt and light nation, to draw attention to the glory of the one true God. Now Jesus is saying, all of that has been pointing to me. And often if you're like me, and even like the people at the time, we often think that the law of God just takes the fun out of life. And all these laws, like, does God even really want our good? Which we're going to see today is that that is not only a total misunderstanding, of what the law of God is about, but that God actually truly does want our good, even in these very hard areas of life, like what we're going to be looking at today. So what Jesus has been doing is he's been specifically showing these different sections of the law, specifically like the Ten Commandments. Have any of you heard of those? The Ten Commandments, those ten main laws that God had given to his people. Jesus is now showing, kind of walking through six of the ten, and using them as case studies almost, to show you had heard the law was about this, but now I'm actually showing you the real purpose of the law. And so last week, we looked at the commandment about murder, which even if you don't know God, you know, probably shouldn't kill people. So the law said, do not murder. But Jesus said, yes, don't murder, but actually there's murder in your heart. And that actually is what the commandment is talking about as well. Scott showed us last week that when Jesus speaks about not murdering, when the commandment talks about not murdering, that includes the hatred that we have in our heart for people, how we often just think other people are stupid and foolish and they're just an idiot. How Jesus is showing us that's actually murdering people in your heart. So Jesus tells us, don't just avoid that, but actually those who are your enemies, pursue them. Be reconciled to them. But as we saw, that's really hard. But we can only do that when we see that that's what God himself has done to us. We were the enemies. We were the idiots. We were the foolish people. And as Scott said, God came running 80 miles an hour after us and said, while you're my enemies, I'm going to still show you my love. So now as we see and experience that, we can in turn now love our enemies and not murder people either physically or even in our heart. And so today, in the passage we're coming to, we're going to be looking at what Jesus says about sexual sin, about sexual lust, about sexual imagination, about adultery, about divorce. So I want to just say at the outset that we want to approach these topics very committed to what God's Word says, listening to what Jesus says, not to Nate, not to Nate's opinion, but to what Jesus is actually saying in the Bible. So we want to be faithful to the Bible, but we also want to realize that this topic specifically speaks to the pain that a lot of us have experienced. In a room this size, it's more than probable that a lot of us have probably experienced divorce and sexual sin firsthand. Maybe you grew up with parents who were divorced. Maybe you grew up seeing 
how divorce just ripped apart families. Maybe you saw and experienced people having adulterous affairs. You just saw the devastation that that wrecked on people. Maybe you yourself have gone through the pain and agony of divorce or having to walk through adultery. Maybe this morning you are somebody here who has a lot of shame as it relates to sexual sin. And so this morning, as I said, we want to proceed being faithful to what Jesus says, but we also want to remember that Jesus has already died for our shame. He's died for your shame this morning. So we can proceed, not in fear, not in trepidation, not in, oh no, this, this sermon's really going to suck. No, what's your confidence in? Is it in your record, or is it in the record of Jesus given on your behalf today? So this morning, we want to fix our eyes, even as we hear the words of Jesus to us on this hard, painful topic. We're going to fix our eyes on Jesus and on his record. Because when we fix our eyes on Jesus and we see the kingdom that he has brought to us, we realize even in these hard passages of the Bible, he's actually for us. He's actually for our good. He actually truly knows what it means to be a real flourishing human. So again, even, I'll just share, even for me this week, approaching this topic, studying for it, I was like, man, this is a hard passage. This is going to hit a lot of us in different areas. Like, wow, this is heavy. And I was driving my car, listening to the Bible on audio or on MP3, which I would really encourage you to do. It's an amazing way to engage with God's word. And I heard this verse from 1 Timothy. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Friends, this morning is about God's word, which saves us, which protects us. So also this morning, we're going to have this passage read in just a second. But I want to say that some of what you might hear today, you might even disagree with. You might just flat out disagree with what Jesus says on this topic of marriage, divorce, adultery, sexual immorality. You might feel challenged on it. You might say, I don't know what I think about that. I want you to know that's good. Because as soon as we start having a God who perfectly lines up with everything we think, I don't think we're following the one true God anymore. I think we're following a God in our own image. A God who is like us. A God who likes everything I like. Not a God who actually calls us out on things. So I want to challenge you today to listen, to be open, and to hear the words of Jesus and to consider them, even if you disagree with them. So we're going to have this text read now by my friend Owen Osborne. And he is going to read for us Matthew 27, Matthew 5, sorry, verses 27 through 32. You have, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than lose your whole body into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immortality, makes her the victim of adultery. Anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery.
Great, thank you. You can just set that down there. Let's pray. Our good Father in heaven, we thank you that this morning we can listen to what you want to say to us. God, thank you that even in light of many of us feeling the sting and the pain of sexual sin done against us, sexual sin that we ourselves have engaged in, thank you this morning that you again call us to look at Jesus to listen to Jesus, and so we pray for your help. I ask for your help, God. Pray for clarity in communicating this truth. And I pray, God, that through the power of the Spirit, we would see Jesus, but that we would be a people who are salt and light for you, who even through our sexual lives, through our bodies, through what we think about marriage and divorce, that even in that, that people would see that the God of the Bible is real, that he has given us his son, Jesus. So we thank you. We ask for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, at the outset, I want you to know that I have one main kind of overarching premise kind of over this whole passage. One thing that I want to try to flesh out as clearly as possible, and I think that Jesus wants us to see. And I think that is that the law of God is clear that we are to do whatever possible to cut off and destroy sexual sin in your life. We are to do whatever possible to cut off and destroy sexual sin in our life. And I believe that that is the overarching premise of this text. Because all that Jesus will say about avoiding sin, about the realities of adultery, about divorce, all of that stems from the fact that sin is deceitful and sin is powerful. Someone will not be led towards divorce unless their heart has been hardened already by the deceitfulness and power of sin. That's why Jesus starts with lust and sexual sin in our heart and then proceeds to the hardening that leads to divorce. So then even as we just begin to jump into this, I think we can all agree that this is a pretty hot topic today. Start talking about sexual, uh, sexual identity sexual preferences, different sexual experiences that people engage with. This is a really hot topic that there's a ton of disagreement on. Sexual, all kinds of sexual experiences and expression in our culture has no bounds. It would seem, and sadly, if you stick around long enough, you're going to realize that that even has infiltrated Jesus' people. I don't know if you hear these things as much as I do, but it seems time after time we see that sexual sin creeps into the church, and whole churches, pastors, denominations just seem to crumble because of sexual sin. But let me ask you, is that limited to today? Is that just our culture? Or is that how it's always been in the church? Often I think that we fall into a really wrong thinking of just, oh, it's just so bad out there. Things are just getting worse. It was never like this before which I think in one sense just shows ignorance that we don't really know the history of the church. We don't actually know the true heart and sinfulness of people. So we need to be mindful that as we listen to this text of Scripture, we need to ask ourselves, well, what was sex and marriage and adultery and divorce, what was that like in Jesus' day? Because I think if we realize what it was like in Jesus' day, we will realize, oh, what Jesus is saying to people 2,000 years ago is actually just as relevant 
to what he's saying to us today. So what I want us to do is to just start by considering some of the realities of what life in ancient Palestine was like. What were the norms for marriage and sex and divorce and adultery? What, what did people think about back then? Remember how a couple weeks ago I said we want to be not just good readers of the Bible and people who follow Jesus, but we want to know how to read our Bible, which means you can't just open up your Bible and say, here's what Jesus said, okay, well, I just I got to go do that. Yeah, you do, but you have to ask, what did this mean to the people who heard it? When Jesus says this thing like certificate of divorce, and if you divorce your wife, she's an adulteress, like, what did that mean in that time? We need to do some digging to figure out what was life like back then, because then we can probably figure out what does this mean to us today. So, in ancient Palestine, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was on the Sermon on the Mount, giving the Sermon on the Mount, that was a time and place where it was generally, broadly accepted and well-known that men would be promiscuous. It was just assumed that men would be having affairs. Married men, oh yeah, he's probably sleeping around with some other people. And that included people in the Jewish community. It was assumed that extramarital affairs would be the norm. It was assumed that husbands would have other women they would sleep with. But women, they were held to the really high standard. Oh no, women weren't allowed to do that. If they do that, cast them out, and they're basically a prostitute now. And we know from the scriptures that God had shown his people what he'd given them sex for, that sex was to be a good gift to a married couple to enjoy in the context of their marriage. That actually sex itself and the intimacy and the union that a couple has in sexual experience, that's actually pointing to the deep love and intimacy that God himself has for us. So sex itself was intended to be a picture. It was never intended to be a reality in and of itself. It was a gift to show us the deep love that God has for his people. That's why a husband and wife were bound together till death do they part, because that's how God himself loves his people. But for the Jewish people, the law of God had said, you shall not commit adultery. So over the years, over the centuries, scribes and different leaders would say, well, what if that really means just don't be found guilty of committing adultery. Do you see the difference? You shall not commit adultery. Don't be found guilty of committing adultery. So, what if a guy was really digging his neighbor's wife? Was like, okay, well, I can't commit adultery because that's wrong. I can't be found guilty of doing that. I got it. I'll just get a divorce. And then I can marry this other woman and see, didn't commit adultery. Got around that one they began to create these loopholes of how they could keep the law, so to speak, but still actually get what they wanted. Several different scholars and guys who've studied the Bible way more than I have talked about how often in that culture, Jewish men would grow cool towards their wives. I don't really have the hots for her like I used to. So then they would try to find any reason possible to just get out of their marriages. I'm no longer really satisfied with her. I think it's time I move on to somebody else. Divorce had become common in that era 2,000 years ago on the most trivial of grounds. And think about that. The law of God had been given to protect marriage, to protect women who would be vulnerable if their husbands left them. Think about this. This was a very agricultural society 
where the men would go out and work hard in the fields and produce income or would be merchants and would be traveling. And a woman would be caring for the family. A woman would be helping run and organize all those things. So if a guy just decided, hey, I'm kind of done with you, she had nothing. She had no standing in society because sadly at the time, women didn't have a voice. You were shut down. It was the man who spoke for you. So a woman whose husband left her would have no choice but to try to find another guy who would take care of her. Which then in that culture meant, oh, well, see, she's an adulteress. Look at her. Women would have no choice but to just find somebody else who would take them in, and often with their kids. And they would then live with the shame of that. These women at the time would be doubly damned because their husband would leave them, and then they'd be viewed just as an adulteress and a prostitute. See how jacked up that is? And that's the context that Jesus is speaking into when he talks about adultery and divorce. We really need to understand that. Because often we read these passages and just think, okay, here's the three rules that Jesus is giving about don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Yeah, he is saying, here's those things. But do you understand now the context of what he's saying to these people about? In light of now some of that background, hopefully your brain's kind of thinking about that context. Let's now look at these verses and try to say, okay, so what is Jesus saying here? Look at verse 27. Jesus is saying, do whatever is necessary to flee sexual sin. Jesus says in verse 27, what the law says, meaning, here's what you've been hearing people say the law means. On the surface level, it says, no adultery. But remember how I just said the Jewish people had twisted and distorted that to mean kind of whatever they wanted it to mean? Jesus here gets to the point and says, it was never about just avoiding adultery. It was about guarding your heart. It was about your own heart, the control center, your affections of who you are. That's actually what Jesus is talking about. Not just physical adultery. Your own heart, your own lusts, your own sexual longings outside of the context of marriage. Thus Jesus says, even looking at a woman with lustful intent, meaning you are imagining, you are fantasizing about what some kind of sexual experience with that person would be like. That's actually what the law is about, he's saying. That's actually the true intent of the law. Yes, actually lusting after somebody and imagining a sexual experience with them compared to actually committing adultery, yes, those are different things. Yes, there are different consequences for those things. I get that, and so does Jesus. But his whole point is, here's what the law is actually getting at. So Jesus mentions this adultery, this sexual lusting in our heart. But what does that mean? What's counted as sexual sin? Let's just think about our own day in which we live in. What about a little dabbling in pornography? Not like quite an addict, but a little bit here and there. Is that considered sinful? Would that be considered adultery of the heart? I mean, technically it's not adultery, right? Would that be acceptable? What about your favorite movies or show that just have excessive graphic nudity, but the show is so good? Is that considered sexual sin? In the realm of social media, which I'm not condemning outright all social media, social media is not pornography, but on most social media apps, 
you can get pretty close. A lot of things on social media don't really leave much for the imagination, you can say that. What about the question, well, how far is too far? I'm dating this person and I want to be pure until marriage. I don't want to sleep with them until I'm married. I want to obey Jesus' rules, but how far is too far? I mean, is this sinful, but is this not sinful? Do you see what we're doing with all of that list of things? We're literally doing exactly what the Jewish people had done. I know there's the law, avoid sexual sin, but this show is so good. All my friends are using this app. Everybody else is doing this thing. Is that really technically sexual sin? Friends, we're doing the exact same thing that the Jewish people at the time were doing. What can I get away with without actually disobeying Jesus? And what's interesting is that if you want to even get technical on this, if you disagree with me and say, oh, no, those, those things aren't sinful, which don't hear me condemning social media. I'm not outright condemning social media. I'm not outright condemning watching shows. But if you want to get technical and fight me on this, the word Jesus uses in the Greek is not just a word that means adultery in marriage. It's this word porneia that includes a wide swath of sexual sins. So both on the intent of the law, but also the, also the technicality of what the word is used, it's talking about all kinds of sexual sins. So the intent of the law and the technicality, the whole point is fleeing sexual sins. But why? Why are we to flee sexual sin? Again, we're going to leave this text for a minute. We're going to come back to it. But we are to flee sexual sin because it is destructive to both our souls and to the community of God. It doesn't take long into adolescence to realize that your body and sexuality is really unique. gives really unique experiences. And so sexual sin is really unique amongst many other sins. Sexual sin involves, in many ways, a true severing, a true tearing of our soul, in a sense, into pieces, where here's this sexual fantasy, this world I live in, and then here's the rest of my life. It's as if our souls are divided because of how sexual sin works. And if you have been in sexual sin before, you know, here's this private world I have, and then here's the rest of my life. Which again, which that just shows why sex is so powerful and why in the context of marriage it's so holy. If you hear that word soul splitting, and if you've been in redemption for a while, you're probably thinking of a certain series of books and movies that involve something like soul splitting. Is anyone thinking about horcruxes in Harry Potter? In the world of Harry Potter, there was this dark wizard who wanted everything. He wanted control of everything. He never wanted to die. So he found about a type of dark magic where he could divide his soul into different parts. Granted, he had to commit murder to do that, to divide his soul, but he ended up dividing his soul into seven different parts. I'm not going to say any more. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, as soon as I say amen at the end, you're going to Barnes & Noble and getting these books. So in the world of Harry Potter, the dark Lord Voldemort was willing to split his soul 
in that way. And so all I want to say on that is sexual sin is really similar. And that it involves a dividing, a splitting of our very soul and nature. Our nature, desires, our sexual fantasies that we think, like Voldemort, I can have it all and it will be fine. Friends, you're destroying your souls. And in this context, Jesus is addressing men. Because as you heard, men were the ones who were primarily doing all of that destroying in that culture, leaving women on the wayside, doing whatever possible to get out of marriages. But I will just say this. His comments are not just limited to the men. Because again, the, true, the truths of what he's getting at here are for all people, for men and for women. Ladies, maybe you struggle with the same type of visual fantasies that men do. Maybe you have areas of your life where you aren't lusting after others, but you are longing to be lusted after. Longing to allure and tempt other people. Maybe even you yourself are giving into pornography or to masturbation. And I want you to know that the heart of this text is just as much directed at you as it is towards the men. Because your sexual sin and your sexual imaginings are destroying your soul. And again, sexual sin is never just you. That's part of the deceitfulness of sexual sin. We think, well, this is just me. It's not hurting anybody. My porn addiction isn't hurting anybody. Nobody knows. I'm not like out you know, soliciting prostitutes or anything. It's just, it's just me and my sin. Your sexual sin will destroy the community you're in. It will destroy you because it will never just stay with you. Sexual sin never reaches a point where it says, ah, I'll stop here. I'm good here. It will continue to escalate and destroy. And again, if you just read the letters of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul and others writing to the churches, you see that in all of the letters of where sexual sin is starting with an individual and it's working its way out to affect the whole community. Sexual sin, secret sexual sins will destroy all of your relationships. It will destroy the trust you've built with others. And so in light of that destructiveness that it brings, what does Jesus say next? Look at the text. He says, do whatever possible to cut off sexual sin in your life. Look at verses 29 and 30. You've probably heard this before. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. A lot of times people get really hung up on like, did Jesus really mean that? Was he really saying to cut your hand off? Let's listen to this quote from a really helpful scholar. This is a guy named John Noland. He says, perhaps the question of literalism is not quite the right one. The challenge is to go to whatever extremes are necessary to eliminate sin. By taking up dramatic and extreme instances, the text urges such a level of seriousness about avoiding sin that there will be unrestrained commitment to the use of all possible means to avoid it. The goal is what is important here, not the means. Does that make sense? What is Jesus saying? Pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. He's saying be drastic with your sexual sin. Take drastic measures with cutting off sin. And so for some of you, 
You might already be sitting in here and it's really apparent to you. This might be the drastic measure. Throwing out the DVDs, canceling the subscription, deleting the app, cutting off the show that you love but it gives you a lot of ungodly sexual arousal. Anything in life, any relationship, any, anything you would look at that leads you towards the world of lust and porn and masturbation. No lie, I know people who say, well, looking at this kind of content, it helps my marriage. Like, we look at porn together and it helps our sex life together, so is, isn't that good? No. No, because what Jesus is showing us here is that there is something greater than having a sexually fulfilling life. So let me urge you, if this is speaking to you, if you are feeling the gentle prodding, which is not me, which I would say is the Holy Spirit speaking to you, you don't just need to cut it out. You don't just need to cut off whatever that would be. You need to get people in your life. You need to get trusted friends involved in your life. And if you can't think of anyone right now who you could tell this to, I think that's the spirit pressing on you that you might need to start thinking about community. You might need to start thinking about how can I begin intentionally, not expecting everyone to be my friend, but being a friend of people and building those relationships. Before we continue, I just want to say to you, in one sense, behind the authority of God's word, but also my experience as a pastor. I've talked to a lot of people you would be shocked at the number of people who have confessed sexual sin to me, which in one sense is an honor, but also really makes me see this truth. Your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out. Sin will rat you out like a bad friend. Living apart from the promises of God and living in secret sin, not only will it not deliver, because sin and sexual sin, it's promising you a lot of things. Oh, if you just do this, you'll be satisfied. Oh, if you just get in this kind of relationship, if you just get a boyfriend or get a girlfriend or get married or maybe don't look at that type of porn, but maybe just do this thing over here. It's all empty lies. It never is enough. Sin will entice you in and then it will rat you out and leave you out to dry. Because sin is a lie. It's the empty power that we hear all the time, but it never delivers. So for some of you, you know already the steps the Spirit is calling you to. Whether it's cutting things off in your life, whether it's confession, whether it's seeking repentance, whether it's coming to me afterwards, I would love to talk to you and pray for you if you need someone to talk to you and pray with. So I think for some of you, today is your day to be honest, to be real. And even as I was thinking about this uh, over this week and prepping and praying, I thought about something that the Lord helped me with when I was struggling in a season of life. It wasn't about sexual sin, but I really had to make a decision. I really had to realize, here's what I need to do with my life, and this is like a moment when I round a corner. This was probably about 10 years ago, and the Lord, through a friend, brought me to hear the root word of which we get decide. When you have to decide, the Latin word for decide means to cut off. It's this word desidere, which means to cut off. To cut off all other means of escape. To decide means to make a decision. 
that I'm going to go in this way. I'm cutting off all escape, and here's what I'm going to do. Some of you need to decide what you're going to do with these words from Jesus. And you're cutting things off, so that means it will be painful. There will be severing. It will feel like your heart and soul is bleeding. You're cutting something off. It's going to hurt. But do you think Jesus actually has your good in mind even in that? And I'll say, even that pain that might be in your soul right now, yeah, you're already experiencing the effects of that pain. Which, again, doesn't mean it's wrong. It means it's going to be painful. And so you need to count the cost and decide. So, before we jump into some closing comments on what Jesus actually says about divorce now, I just want to ask you, do you, do you think Jesus is talking to you today? Do you think he's in his word speaking to you? Are you thinking to yourself, man, these Christians, this Bible stuff, they're just, they're just taking the fun out of everything. Can't, can't you guys lighten up a little bit? I want you to know that the God of the universe actually has your good in mind. He actually has your true fulfillment and pleasure in mind. And for many of you, maybe you have experienced that because you are trapped in sin. And maybe you haven't experienced that because you have yet to step into where true life and fulfillment is found with God and with his people. So if we continue to work through this text, seeing what Jesus is saying about sexual sin, about adultery in our heart, how sin will deceive and harden us. It's there that we see that Jesus now moves towards divorce. And on the topic of divorce, Jesus says, do not go looking for an easy divorce. Do not go looking for an easy divorce. Look at verses 31 and 32. And remember the context where specifically men would just go looking for any way to jump out of marriage, any way to jump out of their relationship with their wife. Jesus says, here's what you've heard the law interpreted as, where in verse 31 he says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, X, Y, and Z. Jesus is quoting what the law had become, which in that time you would go, get the right paperwork in order, probably get the right signatures, and then, boom, out of jail, done with that marriage. It's very easy. Have any of you ever seen um, the show, the show, the show, The Chosen? Anybody? If you are unfamiliar with The Chosen, it's a, uh, it's a crowdfunded show walking through the life of Jesus. And if you are interested in Jesus, you have questions about Jesus, I would really encourage you to watch the show. Most Christian productions are terrible, and I wouldn't recommend you watch a lot of them. This one is fantastic. There's a specific scene where Jesus is talking to a woman in this type of situation. And there's actually a scene, you can see the picture on the left, where she is in this marriage, and she's trying to get out of it. And she has this certificate of divorce, and she's giving it to her husband saying, you're a jerk, I want to get out of this, can you sign this? And her husband takes the certificate and throws it in the fire and says, you're my property, and I don't let go of my property. Highly recommend you watch The Chosen. Quick plug for that. So Jesus 
in this context where he's talking about, you have heard it was said, get the certificate of divorce, and then you can just get out of that marriage. He's not only calling the men out in that culture, do you hear how Jesus is actually elevating and protecting the women in that culture? He's not just calling out the guys. He's saying, I want to protect the women from what this law had been twisted to become. So Jesus is saying, do not go looking for an easy divorce. And I know you have a lot of other questions about divorce. So do I. The Bible is really clear in a lot of other places about divorce. But what I primarily want us to see is what Jesus is saying here. Don't go looking. Don't just be looking for the loopholes of how I can get out of my, my, my marriage. When it's getting hard, when I hate my wife, when we haven't been intimate in a while, when I think, well, this is just over. Friends, not only was Jesus say to you in that time, don't get divorced. Pursue reconciliation. I would challenge you that it's there that the really good stuff of marriage can actually become real. It is there that as you press in to trusting the Spirit, listening to Jesus, pursuing reconciliation, maybe for some of you need to pursue some counseling and get people in your life, it is there that I think your marriage could actually truly start. So yes, choosing divorce on any grounds outside of sexual immorality is wrong. And Jesus is saying that is sin. Yes, it is to be avoided at all costs. Jesus is making that clear. But I think Jesus is ultimately saying to us that we need to avoid the cultural norms of quick and easy divorce because in that you will show the world that God doesn't divorce his people. God doesn't divorce his people when he gets tired of us. God doesn't divorce us when we get nagging or when we get ugly or we are mean, or we are unkind, or we don't meet expectations. The reason we are to avoid divorce is because God himself doesn't divorce us. No, our covenant-keeping God lays down his life in his mercy, in his compassion, in his forbearance, and ultimately, think about this, the very one giving you these commands in just a couple chapters in Matthew, is going to climb onto a cross of wood and be tortured on your behalf because he's that committed to his relationship with you. And as you come to understand that, as you come to understand and see that, as you come to know that that type of God wants a relationship with you, it is then that you will find the power to fight to stay in your marriage. It is then that you will find the power to say, I know I'm jacked up, and I'm really mad at my spouse right now, pretty pissed at them. They've done a lot to hurt me. But when I begin to see how this covenant-keeping God has pursued me and loved me, I realize that the sin my spouse has done against me really isn't that bad. Yeah, maybe it is bad, but it's not this. It's not me sinning against a holy God. Just this week in our marriage book study, which again, would encourage you to come to, we're taking a break this week, but we were talking about forgiveness in the context of marriage. And we were talking about this case study where a woman and her husband were seeking divorce. The husband had had an affair. The wife was considering if she should leave her husband over that or not. But as she came to know the mercy of God in seeing that the cross of Jesus was given for her, she said, my husband and I are a lot more similar than different. Yes, he had an affair. Yes, he cheated on me. Yes, I have every right, even according to the Bible, to leave him. But when I consider my sin in light of a holy God who has loved me and who I've just continued 
to give the finger to. Wow. I'm a lot more like him than different. And she could pursue that reconciliation, giving a true picture of what marriage is actually like. So as we go to conclude, I realize I probably haven't answered every question that you have either about sexual sin or divorce, and that's okay. Guys, we're not going anywhere. We've got the rest of our lives to keep talking about this and keep looking at the Word of God together. And I would say to you that the goal of this passage is not to answer every question we have. Let's look at the whole Word of God. There's other places that talk about marriage and divorce. I think this passage is rather about us asking, what would it look like if the people of God approached sex and marriage and adultery in this way? What if we realize that our very bodies and lives and marriages are actually how we're salt and light? What would it mean if we realized, all of us, that we're in a new kingdom, we're following a new king, and his kingdom has already broken into this world, which means, so, what do we think about sex? What do we think about divorce? What do we think about adultery? I want to close by quoting my good friend, who I've never met, N.T. Wright. He says, perhaps the most important thing to say here in this passage is that Jesus certainly didn't want his hearers or the later church to get embroiled in endless debates about what precisely was allowed. Far, far more important to think about is how to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And in the area of sexual behavior, the answer is clear, bracing, and just as challenging today as it was to the wider pagan world of the first century. And so the challenge to us is to do whatever possible to cut off and destroy sexual sin. Because, guys, the reality is we're all sexual sinners. Every one of us in here is a sexual sinner. We've all probably sinned in varying degrees. Some of us here maybe are stuck in patterns of sin. And maybe some of us here are actually stuck in pride. Because we think, oh, well, I haven't done anything that bad sexually. So as we go to close, what do you think is the ground of your acceptance between you and God in light of your sexual sin? Is it your record? Is it because you think, oh, well, I've never done anything that bad, so of course God must accept me? And if you're on the other side saying, oh, man, I'm so jacked up. I have sinned sexually. I've hurt so many people. I've hurt my spouse. I've hurt my family. I've hurt friends. I've hurt other boyfriends or girlfriends. I've cheated on people. What's the ground of your acceptance? Is it your sexual record? No. This morning, we can be reminded that the ground of our acceptance is never our record. It's Jesus' record given for you. It's always and only ever based on what Jesus has accomplished for you. That is your record now that he gives to you. So today, all of us as broken sexual sinners, we can rejoice that this good news kingdom that Jesus is talking to us about is actually the good news for us even in light of our sexual sin. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask right now, as we're even searching our hearts, that we would all ask ourselves one question. Can I trust this Jesus? Can I trust him for what he's saying about my life? Can I trust him for what he's saying about my own body and my views of sexuality? Jesus, for those who are wrestling with the shame and guilt of sexual sin, Jesus, show them that you are not surprised by their sin, that you've actually already given your life for them. 
that they can repent and believe in you again today. And for those who maybe are holding on to pride because they think that they are sexually pure, Jesus, show us that even the lustful thoughts and intentions of our heart are sexual sin as well and that our performance is never what brings us into your kingdom. It's always Jesus. So Jesus, we want to trust you today in light of our sexual sins, in light of what you are calling us to be in terms of being a people of salt and light, whose very lives, whose marriages, whose bodies, who the way we view sex and even our culture is always defined by what you've said. And in that, would the watching world see and know that Jesus is real. And even through his broken people, he is building his kingdom. Here in Chesapeake, in Deep Creek, in Norfolk, in Virginia Beach, in Portsmouth, in Suffolk, in Newport News, Jesus, you are building your kingdom. And we're super thankful that we get to be part of it. So even now, as we go to sing, we ask Jesus that we would hear your voice to us. In Jesus' name, amen.